Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, fiscal reckoning from soaring property taxes to the carbon tax. Taxpayers cry enough. Plus, why is the NDP government allowed 150 acres of Richmond farmland to be removed from the ALR? And video killed the radio star. We look at the rise of music video channel Much Music and how it became a star-making machine. Plus, we speak to a Vancouver songwriter who performed a concert in a hot air balloon. And why can't our tech contributor, with all the latest high-tech gear at his disposal, not catch a mouse in his own house? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk about taxes. Now, as we speak, the Surrey City Council are for the first time meeting residents to get their input on what was the proposed 17.5% property tax increase. Now, to be fair, about 8% of that increase is for the for the city taxes, and the other, uh, the remaining um, taxes go towards, of course, the ongoing Surrey uh, Police Soap Opera. But if approved, it would have been 17.5% increase. Now, that was as of, well, about a couple of hours ago, maybe an hour ago. Uh, Mayor Brenda Locke, in the last 60 minutes or so, said that they had received $80.99 million from the province as part of their infrastructure fund. So as you recall, the province had $5.7 billion surplus, which they have to spend by the end of this month. They announced a billion-dollar infrastructure uh, program. And, uh, of course, all municipalities in BC would receive some of those funds based on their population. Now, Surrey, as the second-largest city uh, in British Columbia, would get $89.9 million dollars. Well, Ms. Locke today said that would go towards uh, the policing situation. And as a result, the proposed property taxes will go down around 5%. So instead of 17.5%, sorry, taxpayers will only have to pay 12.5%. I guess we should be doing cartwheels, though, but 12.5% still is a lot. Uh, Ms. Locke made those comments within the last hour. Uh, Take a listen to her comments from Surrey City Hall. Since the proposed budget was made two weeks ago, the city has been able to secure guaranteed infrastructure funding of $89.9 million from the province of British Columbia. As a result, the proposed budget will be updated with the new infrastructure funds from the province. In this case, revisiting the budget to factor in the new monies will result in a decrease from the property tax rate currently proposed. While we await for the final numbers from finance, I am confident that the policing surcharge will be decreased from the proposed 9.5 to 4.5%. That's a 5% cut from what was currently proposed. That was Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke in the last hour or so. Now, I was just, uh, you know, uh, surfing around the internet to figure out this billion-dollar infrastructure fund. It went to 188 municipalities and regional districts around BC. And as I said, and as Ms. Locke has said, 89.9% or just $90 million goes towards Surrey. Now, the fund itself is called the Infrastructure Fund. And the news reports that I've seen says the government's Growing Communities Fund are grants which will help local municipalities, quote, improve roads, build arenas and water facilities, improve recreation options for families. It is to allow for future growth 
of communities, build amenities to support housing development, all those types of things. So it's very interesting that this was announced to reduce property taxes, but can the mayor actually do this? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about today's announcement and, of course, the challenge that Surrey residents have in regards to this massive increase, whether it's 17.5% or 12%, is Frank Buckholtz. He's a Surrey Now leader columnist. Frank, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Jess. First of all, your thoughts on today's announcement in the last hour or so that uh, this $90 million fund, uh, money that the city received from the province, like all municipalities, will go towards reducing property taxes. Well, I think it's certainly good news if property taxes are reduced because with the 17.5% plus 3% more for utilities and uh, service fee increases is a massive amount to ask of taxpayers at a time of high inflation and high interest rates and everything else. However, as I think you pointed out very clearly, this fund was announced for infrastructure. That's what the Premier said, and he was pretty specific about what types of infrastructure that should be. The mayor, in the comments you played, said, yes, this will go to infrastructure. But then in the same breath, she said, but we'll knock 5% off the policing surcharge. Well, I don't think that's infrastructure as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. And just uh, in regards to what you said off the top there, you said 17.5% plus 3%. Now, that 17.5% was the announcement. And now with what Ms. Locke said, if, if, if she's able to do this, and that's a big if, it gets knocked down. But you also said plus 3%. Explain to me what you mean by that plus 3%. Well, the 3%, uh, they're planning to do a number of user fee increases. Um, I don't know specifically what all of them are. I'm assuming those include things like the water and the sewer and uh, perhaps increased user fees at rec facilities. I don't know anything about that because I haven't seen the specifics. But in their budget report, which went to their finance meeting today, they, they said there is going to be these increases in user fees. So in your mind, you, you crunched the numbers. So the 175 let's just forget about today's announcement for a second. The 17.5% actually goes all the way to 20% when you take in all those user fees. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, the Surrey residents that I've talked to since this was first announced are absolutely outraged because where are they going to come up with another 20%? You know, I mean, people don't have that kind of money. It just, it's, it's just, it doesn't make sense to me. It's way too high, and I think the city made virtually no effort to try and cut costs in other areas to deal with this. Do you think, and I'm speculating here, but do you think the Premier may have to step in here? Like, I, I don't, and I, I don't mean just taking over the city or anything like that, but just beyond the policing situation, like, we're talking about 20%, even if it drops by five now, it, it, it's a, still a significant increase. I don't know how a, residents deal with it. I don't know how either, and I know a lot won't be able to deal with it because they haven't got the money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the premier isn't too likely to jump in. He did. I mean, basically the money's already given to the city because mm-hmm. they had to do it, as you said, by the, before the end of March. However, I think the city can probably justify what they're doing because the city spends a lot every year on infrastructure because it's a fast growing city. And there's new rec facilities being built. Uh, there's roads. There's 1% of that 20% is supposed to go to road and traffic safety, which fits right in with the, with the Premier's uh, announcement. But, you know, they're spending a lot of money on those services and additional money on those services each year. So I'm sure they can probably fit that money in there. But what surprised me is when she said, well, this is going to reduce the amount for the police surcharge. 
Yeah, and she did say that, and I, yeah, we both heard that. I, I, and, yeah. and I guess in regards to needs, you're right. I drive every time I drive through Surrey. I'm always amazed. First of all, how fast it's growing, and the needs are significant. Your community centers that have been built are are fabulous. I was even at one of your schools a few weeks ago, Grandview Secondary there in South Surrey for a basketball tournament. Beautiful school, beautiful facility, but their growth is still 1,500 new residents a month. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, it's not changing. Um, you know, the area I live in, in the Clayton area, we've got SkyTrain coming down Fraser Highway. It's going to be here in five years. We're going to have enormous growth. We've had new schools built here. There's going to be need for more. We have a new recreation center that just fully opened within the last year. It was basically shut down because of COVID for two years. And there's other parts of Surrey that need the same services. And uh, one thing they did mention in the corporate report, which I noted, and this would definitely fit in with the Premier's announcement, they are wanting to improve the operating hours at the outdoor pools. We have eight outdoor pools in Surrey, extremely popular in the summer months. I regularly have taken my granddaughter down there. She absolutely loves it. And there's swimming lessons, and all those things are so needed for residents here. And we have a huge number of young people in this municipality, so there have to be services for them. Yeah, yeah we forget sometimes the median age in Surrey is 39 years old, so it's a very young community. Um, going back to the original issue, if somehow Ms. Locke is able to, let's say, take money towards an infrastructure project, take the new money that's coming in, put it towards an infrastructure project, and whatever money that was supposed to go to that original project and move that towards policing. I guess the left hand, you can move money around and it can be done where you still reduce costs by 5%. Do you think the public uh, will be much more accepting of a 12.5% increase? I know it's less, but is it still too much for most people to put up with? Personally, I think it is too much for a lot of people. I think it's it's welcome. Uh, I think it should go down more. I think it can be done. I think uh, Port Coquitlam, Mayor Brad West, who I think is a very sharp mayor, they have kept their property tax increase to just under 4%, I understand. Mm-hmm. So obviously it can be done. I know Port Coquitlam isn't growing the same way Surrey is. There is some differences. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it can be done. I would personally like to see them reduce it by this 5%, as she says, but also take a much sharper pencil to the current expenditures. Mm-hmm. Because in a year when people are really struggling financially, I think the city needs to take note of that and do their very best to get the tax increase. I would hate to see it be anything more than 10%, and even that is pretty significant. It is. Frank, thank you for your time, my friend. Thanks so much, Jess. Let's talk farmland, or more importantly, the Agricultural Land Reserve. It was first created in the 1970s, early 1970s, during the Dave Barrett government from 1972. Now, the ALR is basically a provincial land use zone where agriculture is the priority. Well, the only use, really. Now, the ALR compromises just about 5% of BC's total land base, but it also has probably the best soil and the best agricultural capacity in our province when you talk about farming. And the ELR was created because we're not creating any more farmland. The province decided back then to protect the land. And if you go to a large amount of our communities in the Metro Vancouver area, you can see significant amount of land protected by the ALR. Now, there's always been threats for development, need for more land. So there's always challenges to the ALR or people wanting to build housing on ALR potentially, uh, or open up businesses on ALR. Communities like Richmond, 40% of the land base there is actually ALR. Well, we just recently learned the province decided to remove a significant chunk of farmland 
uh, in East Richmond uh, from the ALR, uh, even though the city hall council there uh, was opposed to it. The province decided what they call an order in council to allow about 150 acres, um, uh, the parcel size anyway, uh, to, which is owned by a company called Eco Waste. Uh, they have been using the ALR property as a, a construction demolition landfill for about you know 50 years or so. Uh, they allowed, the, based on this order in council, for that land to be removed from the ALR to allow for the construction of a recycling facility. There has been significant uproar in the community uh, in regards to this decision. Like I said, it wasn't something that was discussed in public. It was an order in council by the NDP government, the same uh, party that brought in the ALR in the 1970s. Our next guest is Harold Steves, a former Richmond City Councillor and a former MLA and uh, knows the ALR very well in that particular government between 72 to 75. Harold, thank you for joining us today. Hi, welcome. Uh, first and foremost, what is wrong with this decision in your mind? Well, uh, in the first place, we're losing farmland. But in the second place, uh, this was to be a major reclamation project that we agreed upon back in 1973. Uh, it was mined out peat bog. And most of the peat bogs that were mined out were, were cre- created into can- cranberry fields. But this one was a little deeper. And I remember walking through the fields in my gumboots and going over the top in a few spots. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, if we put some fill in and put clay topsoil on top, we can actually change class four soil to class one or two. And so we approved uh, for a five-year period for EcoWaste to put inert uh, industrial materials, mostly concrete and stuff like that, into the land and then top it with good so- topsoil. Uh, they come back a, a couple of years later and because uh, they hadn't gone very far on it and asked for an extension. And eventually, in uh, I think it was 2015, they got an extension to 2035. Suddenly, however, uh, the uh, Land Commission, they, they, they wanted, uh, in 2019, they wanted to increase the permit even further. The Land Commission said no, that the province had changed the rules and they couldn't uh, couldn't get an extension of their permit. So they then went to the province to get it out of the Agriculture Land Reserve. The Richmond Council voted on it and did not want it out of the Agriculture Land Reserve. We wanted the original uh, concept uh, completed and uh, opposed it 100%. It went to the Land Commission, uh, went to the, to the uh, Cabinet, and uh, Mayor Brody wrote to, wrote to the Minister of Agriculture and told them told her what the problem was, and she assured us that uh, if they were going to consider taking it out of the ALR, that we were, we would be consulted. Well, we learned about uh, the land being taken out of the AR, ALR last week at the same time as everybody else in the media. We were not consulted. Mm-hmm. Now, so Richmond Council and myself, no longer being in council, we are pretty upset. Uh, now, this, the company Ecoway says they want to create some sort of recycling campus uh, to allow to recycle a variety of, of um, uh, goods and services, uh, and, and that is still uh, something that is needed. Um, you, you know, at the end of the day, f- uh, from wood to plastic to metals, what do you say to that argument? Uh, basically, there's still lots of industrial land where they could do that. They could buy industrial land in Richmond. We have actually changed the industrial zone in Richmond to increase the um, amount of lot coverage and height by three times what, what's been normal. And because of that, we have uh, 34% of the industrial jobs in Richmond already on 14% of the industrial land. 
so they could simply buy some of that industrial land and 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 build it there because certainly uh, uh, they're entitled to do that. The if the permit was extended, they could continue the existing operation. Until now, they have had no desire to. Uh, add extra recycling industries and, and build this uh, ind- industry campus. But what it does do, it, 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 it allows them, if they get it out of the ALR, it allows them to flog the property off for an extra $150 million. So I think that's the incentive. Um, the broader issue of the ALR, many have said that we need to revisit and look at the reasoning behind the ALR. And people aren't against it. I think people generally, whatever your political persuasion is, generally are supportive of protecting farmland. But when they say, whether it's issues like this in this particular uh, company, or some have even gone as far to say, look, look at what the Netherlands is doing in regards to food production. They allow not only just the growing of food, but also the manufacturing of food on ALR. It's, it's the same issue in and around food security. Do you think we need to revisit the ALR? I'm not saying eliminate it, but revisit it and modernize some of the language behind it, or do you think it, it should remain the way it is? I, I think uh, pretty much it sh- should stay the way it is because they can already do those things. And, uh, uh, it, you know, the fact that people aren't doing it uh, is, is not because of the ALR, it's simply because the need has not been seen here in British Columbia. We've been importing from California. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've seen a lot of our agricultural production go to California over the years for cheaper labor and things like that. But once, as, as the price is going up, I think you'll see those changes without any changes to the ALR. Uh, we did a major food security study in Metro Vancouver mm-hmm. a few years ago, which I chaired, and uh, found that uh, really what was needed was uh, a better distribution opportunities through the main main chain stores. They were they were getting all the cheap food from California and and freezing out the local farmers. But the, the farmers there, the land's there, and we, we need the local companies to start buying local local food. What message ultimately? This is an order in council, which means this is done by a stroke of the pen from Victoria by the NDP government. What message do you want to send to them in this particular issue? Your community. This issue, like I said, 150 acres taken out by order in council. What message do you want to do you want to send to Victoria? Well, well I think one message is that uh, other communities should beware because they have suggested that they may uh, uh, develop about 28,000 acres of industrial land on farmland in the province, and if they're going to do it by order in council, not consult anybody, uh, there, there's going to be some problems. But the main problem we have is that we have been fighting Port Metro Vancouver. They bought uh, 218 acres, uh, just uh, uh, one major pro- property further west, further east of this one, and they have the right to take it. In fact, the Port La- Federal Government does, uh, doesn't get, uh, uh, isn't in the ALR. They get to take it out simply because of the federal government. We've managed so far to stop them from developing it, but if this goes ahead, then that land's gone too. It is funny that, you know, here you are as a former NDP MLA, fought to, 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 to create the, ML, uh, the, the ALR, uh, and here you are fighting a your party, who has loved this to happen in one case. At the same time, you're also fighting the port and many other institutions. I mean, there is greater pressure on the development of the ALR, or at least certainly on the edges there is. Oh yes. Uh, what what people don't realize is over the years, a, a lot of our ALR land was has been lost already. I think since 1973, about 2,000 acres of land that was ALR has been converted mostly to industry. But it just doesn't end. And if, if you let it keep on going, pretty soon you don't have much land at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the BC government uh, did a report a couple of years ago, 
called BC's Food uh, Food uh, Security, and they uh, estimated that to feed ourselves in BC would require adding 225,000 acres, not losing land. And that's their recommendation that we have to find golf courses and and uh, poorer lands and rehabilitate them and bring them back into agriculture. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we were doing in this site. We thought we were taking 150 acres that was too wet to, to grow anything on, add some field, put soil on top, and, and rehabilitate that land. And it turns out the province didn't see it that way. Harold, thank you for your time today. Hi, you're welcome. Let's talk a little bit about tourism and more importantly, um, hotels. Now, in a post-COVID environment, I think it's uh, pretty fair to say that tourism is coming back. Uh, One only has to look at how busy our airports are and and some of the stories that we hear uh, from the airports. Or perhaps you're trying to book a a trip uh, with your local travel agent or booking it yourself and trying to find a deal, and it's a little hard right now. I think everybody wants to go on vacation, especially with the winter we've had, but it's 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 coming back, and it's coming back very quickly. Uh, well, new, newly released numbers today by Destination Vancouver shows that the local tourism uh, bureau here uh, is showing that we need 20,000 new additional hotel rooms uh, for Metro Vancouver by 2050, including 10,000 within the city of Vancouver. We already have uh, huge challenges, of course, of getting uh, homes and condominiums and townhouses uh, getting built and needing that space and needing to find uh, those uh, locations and property that uh, will help drive not only housing, but also just driving our tourism industry as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, hotel rooms and hotel room capacity is Royce Chuen. He's president and CEO of Destination Vancouver. Royce, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Uh, how do you view today's report? Is it are, are you an optimist, or are you quite concerned by some of the things that this report has come out with? Definitely an optimist and concerned, just from the perspective of our global competitiveness and trying to rebuild and build Vancouver's global economy, our visitor economy. It's about $15 billion a year. That was back in 2019. And obviously, to get to that number, you've got to have a decent amount of capacity in terms of hotels. Uh, And so I am concerned, and we are concerned, that we've actually been losing hotels since the Olympics. So it's a bit contradictory. You go to the globe, Mm -hmm. you invite them here, and we have a destination that is in global demand, and yet we can't uh, accommodate uh, certain events that want to come to the city in the future, or we won't have accommodation space. Now, the region uh, as a whole, I'm told, is down by about 2,000 hotel rooms since, as you say, the Olympics 2010. What's caused this? Uh, in large part, a number of the hotels have been lost to transferring them into SRO units. Um different style of accommodation, of course, and we, we need to look after people who are disadvantaged, and that's been a big part of it. Mm-hmm. The other part of that is the need for policy, for hotel capacity build, for the bureaucracy in terms of uh, city hall focus in previous uh, regimes, in terms of its importance in building the visitor economy and getting those accommodations in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I look at, uh, let's say, a hotel space like the Four Seasons, um, you know, one thinks of that property and Four Seasons itself, a very successful hotel chain around the world. Uh, you had a successful restaurant as well, the U, very popular, in and around um, the Pacific Center Mall. And even that, to my understanding, is now being converted uh, as well. How much of this also has to do with just developers focusing and wanting to focus on condominiums and townhomes, and that is more lucrative than actually building uh, hotels? 
you you nailed it. That's exactly it. We have such a finite land base here that developers are looking at where they can make their capital work for them. And no doubt, uh, condos, the, the need for, for living space for permanent residency is uh, always also affecting that uh, that tight landmass that we have to work with here. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we losing convention uh, conventions already in this city uh, because our, of our lack of hotels? That will certainly impact us. We are getting close to capacity challenges right now with conventions coming in uh, during the late spring and early summer, and our projections suggest that with conventions, business meetings coming in on top of that leisure visitation, that by 2026, we really will be maxed out capacity-wise for the summer months. Uh, And that's important uh, and good to know because that's when we've got FIFA. So we've got the globe's eyeballs are going to be on this destination in 2026. So what would you like to see done? Um, You know, partially approvals for building are local, uh, but sometimes macroeconomic uh, you know, policies can also have a huge impact on the ability for big companies to come in and build, whether it be provincial or federal. What would you like to see government do to initiate building of more hotels in Metro Vancouver, specifically downtown? Yeah, I, I think it really, we really think it starts with having a city council in place that really understands the importance of this kind of development recognizing there's a balance for living spaces and accommodations for other types, but understanding that developers are going to look for a return uh, and developers want their capital work. Developers want to move through uh, bureaucracy a lot quicker to get the investment happening. So I think that's the first stage of this piece of it. The second part of this is elevating this up to the provincial and the federal level in alignment with provincial or federal strategies for building a very robust visitor economy for Canada, you can't do that without hotels. And so is there a role for both provincial or federal governments to play in terms of making it easier for these kinds of developments to take place? And I think that still has to be uncovered. As we, uh, the market tightens, as you said, by 2026, we'll have reached capacity. That means, you know, trying to find a deal or rent a hotel in the summer months, even as locals or as tourists, there's going to be upward pressure on price. I guess that also, at the end of the day, impacts the type of visitor you're going to get. If you can only, you know, if it's only going to be three or four or $500 a night for a hotel, you're only going to get folks who can afford that. You're not going to be able to get the average traveler because uh, most people won't be able to afford that. It also impacts the type of people that come to the city too. It absolutely will impact that. It really has a one-two hit to it. So if you think about people just coming to Vancouver and wanting to stay, again, there's global demand for the city. But beyond that, we know that Vancouver is not only a destination, but it's also a gateway to other parts of the province. So if you if you use the analogy of the province looking like a mall mm-hmm. and you had an anchor tenant, Vancouver would be that major anchor tenant. It may get the attraction and the interest and people would come here. They'd come to Vancouver one, two or three days or they'd come here for a business conference for a couple of days, and then they might want to go to Vancouver Island, visit Victoria, or go up to the Okanagan. Our concern is if if we're really turning away all kinds of visitors, then we're actually impacting other parts of the province where we know visitation occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I, I and I've been focusing our conversation mostly on on um, downtown Vancouver, but I mean I'm thinking we've covered a lot of redevelopment uh, conversations in Metro Vancouver. Uh, the Broadway corridor is one people have talked about. Uh, is the future in regards to building some of these hotels going to be outside of downtown Vancouver? Well, whether it's along the Broadway corridor, whether it's along the Canada Line towards Richmond, or, or even if there's an expansion of the Expo Line further into Surrey, places like that, rather than downtown Vancouver, in regards to building greater capacity, more hotel rooms for the entire Metro Vancouver area? I think it has to. Again, down in the peninsula, we've got such a finite space and we're world jockeying for that great real estate, but it has to be built out. What we like about the Broadway plan is that we worked with the city during the consultation phase and we were able to, uh, I think, influence some of the planning uh, considerations around the Broadway plan to include hotel development space in the consideration set. And I think that's the opportunity working with city council and uh, you know city departments is to make sure that the conversations also include hotel development in the consideration. And now with the release of this report, we're certainly sharing it across the province and the lower mainland. We can see the impact of hotel development farther down the lines and into other municipalities would make a difference. Royce, thank you for your time today. Jazz, thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Let's talk uh, music for a moment. Now, today, when I go to my Spotify account, I essentially have access to millions of songs from around the world. I can go to YouTube as well and find my favorite act or perhaps a new artist as well. In both cases, I am a slave to the algorithm. Now, imagine a time when your access to music... uh, And what was hot and hip came from a music station, from uh, heavy metal to grunge to hip-hop to R&B. In the 1980s and 90s, much music broadcast youth culture into our living rooms, connecting our large country. Think of people like Erica M., J.D. Roberts, Master T., Monica Diol. They were household names, and even to a younger generation, Rick the Temp or Hannah Simone. Our next guest knows the subject well. Sean Menard is the producer of 299 Queen Street West. It's the address of Much Music. He is a veteran uh, filmmaker. Sean has produced and and edited and directed The Carter Effect, which looked at basketball star Vince Carter's influence on basketball in Canada. Sean, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Jeff. I love that that intro, man. You really nailed it. (laughs) consume music back in the day. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, I'm showing my age as well, and uh, certainly uh, speaks to probably the impact much music had on me. I grew up in the interior here in British Columbia, a small little lumber town, and, uh, you know, my access to the world, like many, uh, in many communities, whether it's a big city or a small town, was was uh, much music. Uh, what convinced you to pursue this documentary, this idea? Uh, well, obviously, I grew up uh, in Hamilton, a slightly larger city than you did, but growing up watching the channel had a big impact on my youth. And then it really just came down to a feeling that people were kind of forgetting or this part of history was, was getting overlooked and forgotten. And that's the great part about being able to make documentary films. You get to remind people and show them really, you know, when you're listening to modern music and the Drakes of the world or the Sean Mendez or Beavers weekend, they all came from, you know, the Toronto area watching much music so there seemed to me seemed to be a, a great story in a parallel there now you know in in some cases it was also tv the tv that was produced relatively cheap uh, compared to other uh, other networks why do you think it was so successful well i think it had that you know in the place of money 
they had to balance it out by giving them complete freedom. And I think that was a beautiful thing because sometimes when you don't have money to throw out a problem, you have to solve it creatively. So you had these artists that came in the studios and they embraced their lack thereof, where it was really just a workplace and the phones are ringing and people are walking around and you had some of the biggest names in music sitting down being interviewed by a VJ with no experience live on television. There's fans all around watching, not only on TV, but in the environment. And there was a magic there. And I think that's what really resonated with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Did you have any difficulty getting access to some of these VJs and those behind the scenes to to tell the story? Uh, No, well, I actually brought on Erica M as my consulting producer. I'm from a different generation of much music. So I actually didn't, and I told her this when we met, I didn't really know who she was until I researched this project. But that was part of the genesis of why I felt it was so important to do this. Um, And then she kind of just helped open the door and and reach out to to a bunch of the VJs. Uh, George Strompolopoulos was the the final one and probably the most difficult to track down. He lives now in Los Angeles, but he eventually came on board and and gave an amazing interview. So um, I think the VJs were uh, skeptical that this thing was actually going to be executed. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but once they see it kind of rolling out, and especially since it's playing now in easily one of the biggest festivals, if not the biggest festival in the U.S., I think it's really given them a lot of um, confidence that people really do uh, resonate with this story. You couldn't tell the story without access to some of that footage, which is still going to be owned by uh, these companies. Uh, and did you have any difficulty getting access to some of that old uh, great footage? For six years, yeah. I've been trying to make wow. the film for that long. And every time I go to the rights holder, they say, no, we're not interested. We don't want to finance this or, or, or people know that story. It's not interesting. And it's not their fault. They just couldn't see what I was seeing in my head. So I just decided to uh, make the film without them um, and forge ahead. And you're right, I could use small clips. But at the end, I, I really need the whole library there. Obviously, it would make the film better. And at one point uh, early on in the process, I just sent them a trailer using YouTube clips. Hey, this is what the film's going to feel like and, and sound like. And here's who I've got involved. And they were great, man. Um, they, they opened this, the, 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 the complete library and basically said, um, you know, have access to everything, which no one in the history has been able to do. Um, so that kind of cleared the path. Was there anything surprising to you? Did anything surprise you in regards to this the, as you were producing and writing and directing all of this? Did, was there anything that sort of jumped out? You go, I didn't know that. Oh, there was a lot off the top of my head. I don't. I, I was surprised at, at the lack of experience the VJs had. One would think that you would put someone on air who not only has experience but wants to actually do that job, mm-hmm. and you would learn that, for instance, Master T – who I grew up watching on Rap City, he was a tape operator and a, and a, and a, a camera assistant for years. And they kept trying to say, hey, I think you'd be good on television. Um, but he kept resisting until finally he was just thrown into the mix. Um, so I thought that was really surprising that none of these VJs really had that kind of background. And, and imagine the pressure just being thrown live to air and interviewing these stars. Yeah, I, mean, I remember him hosting, I think it was Extendamix as well, um, which was one of my uh, favorite shows um, on Much Music. Uh, now, you were saying uh, you're, the documentary is playing, it's a South by Southwest uh, conference? Yeah, so it's playing down, it will, it will make its premiere next Monday uh, at this South by Southwest Film Festival. Um, it will have two 
two uh, screenings there. And then after that, to be honest with you, um, I want it to have its Canadian premiere at a certain festival that takes place in Toronto in September. <laughs> you can fill in the blanks. Um, and then I, I want, I'm going to take it coast to coast, Jazz. I'm going to have it, um, you know, from St. John's all the way out to your part of the town in Vancouver. I'll bring out some, some of the stars of the film, have a Q&A after. And I really just want to make it a big event where people can kind of grab their friends from back in the day or, or teenage kids to show them, hey, this is what I grew up with. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. Pack out a theater and have a really great event and then afterwards it will uh, it'll be available for everyone in Canada streaming on Crave. Well, I think one of their uh, one of their hosts Monica Dio lives out here in Vancouver as well, so I think uh, I think you can probably bring a few personalities for sure. I'm really curious in your mind, could something like that be replicated in Canada today whether it be television or just even new technology, new channels, could something like that be something like that be replicated where a network or um, some sort of entity becomes a town square, in this case for culture and for music. Can we replicate that today or are we just so divided and stuck on our own channels, whether it be Spotify, YouTube, whatever it may be? We don't seem to have that um, communal experience. Like a guy from Hamilton like you or a guy like me from Williams Lake in the interior here in BC, we both have a, a commonality and experience we can share together. seems to me today that's getting tougher and tougher. It is. I mean, even when you look back in the day at the speaker's corner element, which is very much mirroring modern day social media, being able to sit there and, and say what's on your mind for two minutes and, and upload it. Um, I don't know. Part of me says no, in a sense, because definitely it was also a part of the timing of all these new forms of music that were starting out. And that was part of the magic too. But I, I think ultimately audiences don't necessarily want to just keep getting the same thing. I think inherently what makes art so beautiful is sometimes you just want the artist to paint on a canvas and show you what's cool or interesting, or the art of discovery seems to be lost a little bit um, in our modern times. So I have faith that eventually things will come in, in cycles and we'll get back to something like that. I, I don't think it will be on the traditional television medium, but certainly it'll be something that um, we'll be able to connect fans of art and music and culture in another generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a documentary filmmaker, and it's very difficult sometimes to find funding and to get projects off the ground. Your last project you worked at, I believe, was the one called The Carter Effect, which looked at uh, basketball star Vince Carter's influence on basketball in Canada. Um, and this, of course, is on much music. Uh, how, how do you decide what project to move forward with as, as a filmmaker and as a creative person? It's ah, a great question. I, I, first and foremost, it starts from scratching my own itch. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want to see it, um, and it just doesn't exist. So then I kind of set out to try and make it. And, of course, I, I, I recognize that there's an audience for it, um, and I'm not alone. I'll have conversations with my friends, or you just get a vibe when you go even on YouTube and you see the amount of views of what people are consuming. So that kind of steers me in the right direction, that it's not just going to be something that is watched by only a few people. And then the funding part is easily the most difficult. Um, that's what, you know, it took me six years. And then this project, to be honest with you, I just decided to put up my house. And wow. was, you know, my only asset that I, I felt like I could put forward. And I was like, you know what? Worst case scenario, this film exists. And if, and, and if, that's, the, <laughs> if that's the worst part of all of this, um, I still feel like I'm winning in a sense because I created this before to help uh, remind a lot of people and bring, bring you know, just 
a great inspirational piece of Canadian nostalgia back to people's uh, kind of uh, memory. Yeah. Sean, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed our conversation. Good luck to you. And do let us know uh, if you, when you do come out to Vancouver to to uh, have the opening for 299 Queen Street West. We'd love to, love to give you a bit of publicity. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, man. All the best. Well, let's revisit um, a story we first talked about uh, at four o'clock. We all know that tourism is coming back slowly, in some cases very quickly. We saw, of course, the the rush at the airport during the Christmas period, um, of course, a difficulty in booking flights, um, all of that. Uh, but the hotel industry today announced through Destination Vancouver that they need 20,000 new additional hotel rooms for all of Metro Vancouver by 2050, including 10,000 within the city of Vancouver alone. Now, that, of course, speaks to growth. We're expecting another million people to move to Vancouver between now and 2050, many more tourists coming uh, as well. But here's the challenge. Uh, Since 2010, the region has lost 2,000 hotel rooms, not gained any more hotel rooms. So I want to talk to our next guest because he has a sense of development and, and, and building in this city. And it's tough enough getting housing built, um, whether it be condos, single-family homes, or townhouses. What about hotels as well? Joining us now is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, he's a planner, and real estate consultant. Michael, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So walk me through. um, There, of course, some of these hotels have been converted to SROs, as we heard um, at 4 o'clock from the president and CEO of Destination Vancouver, Royce Chuen. But at the same time, I want to talk to you a little bit about just the challenges of building a hotel. Does this surprise you that we've actually lost 2,000 hotel rooms for the region since 2010? No, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me, Jazz, because uh, from 1996 to 97, I worked as the provincial government's program manager for the proposed expansion of the convention center. Mm -hmm. And as part of that project, we were trying to get a thousand-room hotel built. And, of course, that never happened. But that's when I learned just how difficult it was, especially at that time and still today, to make the economics work for a new hotel, which is why so many of the new facilities that have been built, whether it was the Trump Hotel, now the Paradox, or the Shangri-La, or Pacific uh, Rim, were often built with housing because those condominiums were subsidizing the hotels. But we have seen a proposal, which uh, I'm sorry I missed your earlier interview, but there is a proposal uh, uh, being talked about today for a major new hotel in uh, 500 block West Pender mm-hmm. with 578 rooms uh, designed by a very uh, capable architect, Henrika's partners with Marcon, a very good developer. And that to me is very exciting news, although I must confess I was surprised to read it because it didn't appear to have any condos coming with it. Yeah, but is, is moving forward, th- that is that the way to do it, moving forward? Condos and hotels, in this case, as you say, this one doesn't have condos connected to it. But do you see more and more the condos being connected to, to, to a hotel's opening? Well, certainly that has been really the only way, with a couple of exceptions, that we've been able to get new hotels. Uh, the Two exceptions are, in a couple of instances, we've seen new hotel rooms coming in combination with new office space. And, of course, we did get some new hotel rooms 
in conjunction with a casino. And so certainly those two components go together very well. But generally speaking, um, if you speak to developers of hotels, they'll tell you that the economics are such that it's very difficult to make the, the numbers work. Um, if the numbers are, if, if it's difficult to make the numbers work, and perhaps that's more specific to uh, the downtown peninsula, with the Broadway corridor expansion over 20 years with the SkyTrain there, uh, significant, continued significant growth in Surrey, um, uh, in places like Richmond with the Canada Line, Surrey with the, with the expansion of the Expo Line in that direction. Is that where we're probably going to see more hotels potentially for the region, less so in downtown Vancouver, but areas like the Broadway corridor in places like Richmond and Surrey? There is a proposal for a new hotel along the Broadway corridor, and uh, it's a few hundred rooms, and I think that will be a great addition, although there was an older hotel uh, on the site. I expect to see more hotels being built in Burnaby and in Surrey uh, because those communities are certainly growing. The other thing is we have seen two small hotels built on the North Shore in North Vancouver, Some of your listeners may have been to the Seaside, which is a delightful little boutique hotel buried into the shipyards development. Uh, West Vancouver desperately would like to see a small hotel being built. Uh, Some of your listeners, again, the older ones will remember the Park Royal Hotel. Um, So I think we will see more hotels being built around the region. But... uh, it is exciting, at least for me, to see a proposal for some new large hotels. The problem mixing hotels with condos, Jazz, is often you don't get really big projects. Like the Trump Tower, which looks like a really big ta- uh, project, that only had 147 rooms. You know, it was not really that many at all. And indeed, many of these other hotels only have 200, 300 rooms. Is this something that other, other uh, my final question, do other cities have to go through the same challenge or is this more specific to Vancouver? I mean, I, New York's got expensive land, Toronto would have expensive land, San Francisco as well, LA. Are they going through the same challenges? Is, it, is this an industry-wide problem when it comes to the hotel sector? Uh, some, some of us love the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. The Waldorf Astoria is being converted from hotel to condominiums. Really? Yes. So indeed, (laughs) it it works both ways. Yes, hotels, but the room rates in hotels are so much higher in New York than they are in Vancouver. If you go on a Google map and look at the rates of hotels in Vancouver, a lot of the room rates are not that high compared to what other cities around the world will typically charge. And that is part that is part of the problem. I worked uh, with the Bayshore Hotel, Western Bayshore, for ten years, mm-hmm. and uh, we did get approval for an additional two hundred and fifty rooms uh, tower next to the hotel. That was back in uh, nineteen ninety four, and that has not gone ahead. And uh, as some people may know, Concord Pacific, the owner of Concord Pacific, has bought the Bayshore property. And, uh, well, it'd be interesting to hear what he has to say. My expectation is that if he had his druthers, he'd like to close down the hotel and just keep building condos. Especially, at, I'm sure the city <laughs> won't allow it. Especially at that site. It is a lovely site. It's a great site as well. You know, in an era of Airbnb and, and all, the, the, all that sort of thing, I'm still a big fan of just me of a good old-fashioned great hotel, a great lobby to watch people, all that sort of thing. I think I'm a big fan of a, a traditional big big five-star hotel. I just think they're fabulous. 
No, I, I, and fortunately, we have seen some of our hotels uh, kept and restored. Uh, the Rosewood Hotel Georgia yep. did undergo a significant renovation, but again, that was financed in large part by that condominium tower that was built next door. So yet another example of combining housing, condos. Yeah. Part of the problem here is just the land cost. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate your thoughts uh, and expertise. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All the best. A couple weeks ago, uh, our latest guest was on this show. Uh, he called uh, to tell us about um, a challenge he had in his own home. He, he, he found a mouse, and he's been trying to catch this mouse. And his story is now traveling far and wide. Beyond this show, of course, he was on Global's NewsHour uh, last night, he's been in the paper, and the hunt continues. Joining me now is Andy Brar, uh, mouse hunter and tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy, welcome. Hi, Jazz. How are you, my friend? You sound, uh, certainly in the articles, I feel, I go, he, he's, he's a really patient man. By now, I would have called him exterminator, but not you. You have been at it, going after this, trying to find this pesky mouse. How's it going? Well, I'm an incredibly stubborn man, Jazz. You know, when I when I first suspected that I had this mouse, it started actually. This is round two with this mouse battle. Uh, it, it began in November when I noticed a small hole in a loaf of bread that I have beside my toaster, and I was like, "What? Why is there always a hole here?" So, being a tech guy, I had I thought this is a great opportunity to try these new indoor wireless cameras. Mm-hmm. Never really had a use for them um, otherwise. So I was like, "Well, this would be a perfect." you know, little review. So I did a review. Actually, I did it for Best Buy Canada. I got them to send me one of these cameras and I used it. And sure enough, at nighttime, this little mouse was coming, creating a little hole and nibbling on the bread. Then it was on. Once I saw that, I could not think of anything else except where is that mouse coming in from? And back in November, I found that hole. It was behind my dishwasher. And then about three months later, last week, it came back again. There was a hole in the bread. I set up a camera. The mouse was, it was the exact same mouse. I did a forensic analysis of the tail, Jazz, and it was the exact same length. So I know that same mouse came back into my house. And then round two of man versus mouse was on. <laughs> now, have you just sort of uh, at least thought, you know what, this is a lot of trouble. This is eating up a lot of my time. Maybe I'll just uh, have a friend uh, drop off their uh, the, the cat or something like that. Uh, any thought of getting a pet like a cat to deal with some of these uh, pesky issues? Well, it was interesting. Like, I posted that video of that mouse coming back on Twitter, and it kind of went viral. And everybody had a suggestion, and one of them was, you need a cat. And I thought about that, but I was so laser-focused, Jazz, on trying to figure out how that mouse was getting into my house. I did that kitchen reno back in 2017 myself. So there was part guilt that I wasn't thinking about mice when I was doing that reno. So I'm like, what other holes are there in the wall that I made that I forgot about? And so it was kind of me trying to fix my own mistakes. And I'm the kind of person when I make a commitment, I'm I'm all in. (laughs) And the fact that I posted on Twitter, it became like a reality show where people wanted to know every single day what the update was. And each day it got escalated to the point where I had to actually take my entire kitchen apart to find that hole and use wireless cameras. I used three, but I actually set up a wireless home security system for my parents. 
Jazz, I went there and took those cameras out oh, <laughs> and really? brought them back to my house because <laughs> just in case I needed more cameras. Because the issue with these wireless cameras, they're great, they have motion detection, is that the mouse is so fast, it can get out of that hole and then it starts recording. So you can't really figure out where it's coming in and out from. All you could see is running around and that just drives you absolutely crazy, or at least it did for me. Now, I was mentioning that Global BC uh, covered um, the uh, travails of Andy trying to catch this mouse. Um, Jasmine Bala did the story. Take a listen. Man versus mouse. Andy searched for possible entryways into the kitchen and found a hole behind the dishwasher. He patched it up with some steel wool and insulation foam. And that was that. And then the mouse was gone. And I thought the problem was over. But he was wrong. Three months later, it was back for more. I did some forensic analysis of the video and I determined based on the tail, it was the same mouse. I even named him Jerry after the Tom and Jerry cartoons. Andy once again began searching for holes. He found one and filled it in. More cameras were set up, but Jerry was a formidable opponent, unrelenting. I ripped out everything to find this hole. And it revealed another hole underneath Andy's cabinets. Again, he patched it up. And then I made some little mouse dessert, which is little peanut butter on bread. The trap was set and it was time for the final showdown. But his opponent never showed. He gets to live and I get to eat, eat my bread in, in peace. But this problem is solved. A hard-earned victory for man, at least for now. So uh, that was Global BC's uh, Jasmine Ball filing that story uh, for yesterday's uh, news hour. So at this point, the, the mouse is gone, but could come back. Yes. Well, it came back once, Jazz. So, yeah. um, you know, and a lot of people were saying that when I posted on Twitter, like, you know, you're not done. This mouse is going to come back. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm feeling pretty confident now. You know, a after each win, my confidence level goes up. So um, for anybody that wants to actually see that entire video thread, you can just go to my website, Handy Andy Media. On the blog section, you can just watch as I first discover there's a mouse and then everything I did. I took the bulkhead apart. I took this indoor vertical garden that I built in my kitchen, Jazz. Yeah. I had to take that apart as well. A lot of people were like, what is that thing? So I probably will do a follow-up video on that. Um, but yeah, I took my kitchen apart to find that hole. And thankfully, I'm so happy to report that I did find that hole and that mouse has yet to come back yet. So Time will only tell if it's uh, longer gone or if it's going to come back in. And a lot of folks also said, look, uh, there's other humane ways to, to, to get rid of the mouse as well. That's part of the debate as well, not just the traditional mouse trap, but making sure the mouse is caught but uh, uh, is uh, off to a home where they can still live, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a healthy way. It's, and I saw that conversation on Twitter as well. Like, don't, don't use the traditional mouse trap so that you end up uh, hurting the mouse, but there's other ways to deal with it as well. And I know you got pulled into that conversation. I did. I did. But do you know what the funny thing was, Jazz, is because of that camera and you get such a good look at the mouse and up close, I kind of formed this attachment. So I didn't want to kill it. <laughs> it I is... just didn't want it to eat my bread. I was a simple man. I'm like, you can live, Jerry. Just stay away from my kitchen, please. Jerry's a cute, good looking mouse. I'll tell you that much. I've seen the footage. It's actually the quite most famous mouse in Vancouver. right? You're now. absolutely right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope Jerry has found a place where he can live peacefully and leave you alone. So thanks for your time. Thanks, Jazz. Thank 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.